the idea of eating insects wonderfully sparks people's curiosity, but it also can be very viscerally disturbing for those that don't know. Small-scale farmers hardly contributed to climate change, yet they are heavily impacted by rising temperature and changing rainfall patterns. Agriculture is actually an important part of the solution because it can help sequester carbon in soil, in the plant, can also help adapt to the impact of climate change. You're listening to the Lilies on the COP27 podcast from the United Nations. I'm Connor Lennon. And I'm Laura Quinones. Today it's Saturday, but it's a working day. We're not uh, going nowhere. We're no, sticking around here we're all day. We're still here. It was Agriculture and Adaptation Day. That's adaptation to the climate crisis. Those are the main themes today. Yes, and we'll hear for two of the UN agencies that are related to agriculture, which are IFAD, the International Fund for Agricultural Development, and FAO, which is the Food and Agriculture Organization. And I'll be thinking about changing my diet to be a bit more sustainable, eating bugs. I haven't done it. You've eaten bugs, Ooh, haven't you? But yes. I haven't done that yes. yet, so I'll be thinking about that. And also, are we finally looking into the issue of beans? Are beans good for you? <laughs> and is there a human emission situation with beans? I, All I, that. I think there's some methane produced with the beans. We'll find out, won't we? That's coming up later <laughs> in the show. And today was officially the Global Day of Action here at the Blue Zone at COP27. We had a coalition march. It was a coalition of all of the NGOs that are present uh, here at the conference. And, well, I spoke to a couple of protesters. I mean, it was great. It was huge. It was the biggest protest we've seen the whole week. They went through, you know... There are like eight pavilions around us, like eight buildings, pavilion buildings. And in the middle, there's like this big road that separates them. So they all did the march all over that road. You were gone for a while. Yeah, I got a little trapped in the (laughs) protest. Proper protest, yeah. (laughs) I I spoke with this woman, a Jew activist that was wearing this blue dress, very, very long, with a long tail. And I asked her, what, what was that about? Basically, it's about the losses and damages that countries have are suffering at this moment. So the water is metaphorically up to here uh, and literally up to here in some countries. So that's why I'm wearing this blue dress symbolizing that water. What is the message, your message to our leaders? It's time for loss and damage financing and, and that time is now. So they have to take action on it. It shouldn't just be on paper. There should be an actual uh, funding available for these countries that are suffering the consequences the most. We need climate action. No more promises, no more blah, 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 blah. We need action, and we need action right now. We cannot talk climate justice without human rights, without gender mainstreaming. We cannot talk climate justice without finances, without preparation for loss and damage. So we need action now. How is climate change affecting the people in Cameroon? It's, it's, it's greatly affecting people and women the more. Women the more because they are cut off first with family, first with taking care, first with grooming the life, before being part of the climate um, action initiatives locally. But then these women are not also recognized in the national platform and in, and in other spaces. So we need this action where women will be recognized, where their actions will be counted as part and parcel of, of, of climate justice. That was your experience at the big march today, speaking to some protesters from Women Engaged for a Common Future, Rebecca Hovelmans and Ernestine Lekeke, who is from Cameroon. Now, what were the big announcements today within the Blue Zone once you managed to get your way back inside the venue? Well, today was Agriculture and Adaptation Day. 
So the big uh, announcement was a new initiative called Food and Agriculture for Sustainable Transformation. This is kind of led by the Egyptian presidency to uh, improve the quality and quantity of finance in agriculture. And there was a powerful speech today from Dina Saleh. She is from the International Fund for Agricultural Development. She's actually the regional director of the Near East, North Africa and Europe division of the agency. And this is the UN agency which focuses on support for rural economies, food security and climate change. And she was making the point that smallholder farmers in the region and around the world really are the backbone of food production. And they're extremely vulnerable to the effects of the climate crisis. Small-scale farmers of developing countries produce one-third of the world's food. They are essential for the food security of their continent and communities. In Africa and Asia, they produce up to 80% of the food produced on the continent. About 3 billion people live in the rural areas of developing countries, and they rely to a significant extent on small-scale farming for their food and livelihoods. Small-scale farmers hardly contributed to climate change, yet they are heavily impacted by rising temperature and changing rainfall patterns. A small change in crop yields makes an enormous difference for a small-scale farmer who often barely manages to feed the family. Yet yields could reduce by as much as 50% by the end of the century. Small-scale farmers are also victims of extreme weather events, be it long-lasting droughts, devastating floods as we see today, or cyclones. In the Horn of Africa, a catastrophe is unfolding. At least 36 million people are affected by the region's worst drought in 40 years, and 20 million people do not have enough to eat. We cannot continue to go from one crisis to the next. Small-scale producers only receive 1.7% of climate finance, and only 3% of that goes to the agriculture sector. It just doesn't seem right. We need to massively increase the funding available to help them to adapt, and we need to do it now. Failure to help rural populations to adapt could have dangerous consequences, leading to hunger, poverty, migrations, and conflict. This is why today we are calling on world leaders from developed nations to honor their pledge to provide the 100 billion a year in climate finance to developing nations and to channel half of that to <clears throat> half of that amount to climate adaptation. That was Dina Saleh, the regional director of the Near East, North Africa and Europe division of EFAT, pointing out that small-scale farmers produce around 80% of food in Africa and Asia to only get 1% of climate finance. And she also issued a reminder that the 100 billion that has been promised for climate finance has still not materialized in full. So FAO, uh, the Food and Agriculture Organization, is also present here. Obviously, it was their, their day. They have their pavilion, a pavilion for the first time in the history of COPs. And this is because they want to highlight the fact that agriculture, while it emits 
a third of the greenhouse emissions can also be part of the solution. So to talk about that, I interview Situni Uldada, who is the Deputy Director of the Climate and Environment Division at FAO. And uh, he told me what a sustainable agriculture system will look like. Agriculture is an important emitter of greenhouse gas emissions and therefore contributing to climate change. Around the third of global greenhouse gas emissions come from agri-food systems, from production to consumption. But the other issue also is that we want agriculture, and agriculture is actually an important part of the solution as well, because it can help sequester carbon in soil, in the plant, can also help adapt to the impact of climate change and build resilience. So this is really the important aspect now that we talk especially more about implementation where we're looking for solutions, we're looking for innovative solutions. And agriculture has to be an important part of this solution to fight the climate crisis, the, bio, the, the biodiversity loss crisis, and also you know, the, the, the conflicts um, in Ukraine, you know, the crisis of um, the pandemic that we've been living, they have actually shown the vulnerability of agri-food systems. So we really need to rethink how we connect with the agri-food systems and transform them so that they become resilient to the impact of climate change and other shocks and also inclusive uh, as well as sustainable and efficient. The other thing in terms of solutions also is really to harness the power of innovation because if you want to reduce emissions from agriculture, if you want to build adaptation and resilience, then we have to invest more in innovation. And the other aspect of solution really, and the most tricky and challenging one, is about consumers. Is how do we change people's attitude, our attitude, um, so that we don't throw food away, so that we respect the food and how it is produced, so that we also produce food in a way that is sustainable and kind to the environment and natural resources at the same time. Davos Situni Uldada, the Deputy Director of the Climate and Environment Division at FAO. Now, what should we eat? How can we be more sustainable? That's what I wanted to find out today. So how do you feel, Lara, about a diet full of beans and bugs? Would that fly with you? Uh... Let me try and convince you. (laughs) I met someone from Beans Is How. His name is Paul Newnham. And he's an evangelist for beans. And Beans Is How is a campaign to fix the future by doubling bean consumption. One of the things that we can do is really change the the choices that we make daily around what we eat. And we can eat things that do help have an impact on soil, have an impact on our climate, have an impact on our health, and that are also affordable. Now, we eat beans already, right? So what's different about what you're doing? So at the moment, bean consumption around the world has has been fairly level. Um, and so there is a lot of cultures and a lot of communities that do eat beans, right back from indigenous communities over the years, different parts of the world, they have their unique beans dishes. What we're not seeing is a, is a transition to see increase in bean consumption. And given the challenges we face with our climate, we have to accelerate change. And one of the things that needs to happen is we need to think differently about what we eat so that we're getting these, these benefits which are triple benefits. So thinking about climate, thinking about health, thinking about affordability and accessibility. And so this is really, really key. And beans create this ability for us to drive change. They're an innovation which is in our cupboard. It's something that's around. We don't have to invest a huge amount 
to kind of develop and scale because it's already there. So we just have to change the way we perceive these foods and help people that are already eating them to eat more, help people that aren't considering it or eating them to, to add a couple of dishes to their diet. And I think this can really drive big impacts. Is this about getting people to eat less meat? Is it linked to that? So obviously, if you're eating something, like if you're eating beans, you're not going to be eating something else. And so it is an option. In some parts of the world, that's really important. And so this is an option about not telling people what they shouldn't be doing, but telling people what they should be doing. We're really trying to focus here on the positive, which is to say beans are amazing. They taste great. They're good for the planet. They're good for um, your health. And so you should be eating more of them. The conversation sometimes when we get into what you should and shouldn't, you, you, you shouldn't do, it gets into a debate. And, and that's important to have. Um, there are people that need to eat less meat. There are people that need to eat more, more plant-based ingredients. Other parts of the world, they do need a little bit of animal. It depends on the environment. And I think context is key. But I do say, generally speaking, when I speak to most scientists, they say all agree that, that beans are something that's really hard to argue with. Give me your top bean recipes. So my absolute favorite bean recipe is a, is a burger. It's a burger substitute. Um, it's made with black beans, uh, sweet potato, brown rice, and a number of herbs and spices, my secret sort of recipe. Absolutely amazing. I have four kids, my kids love it. They, they, they preference that, that's their favorite burger style dish. But there's lots of other innovations like bean-based pastas. I've seen all kinds of, I've even seen beans popped. Lots of innovation happening on that. I space. had chickpea pasta. That's very good. And chickpeas have a lot of protein, don't they? They do have a lot of protein. So, I mean, often people talk about this as a protein alternative. And, and it is. It can be a protein alternative. But it's way more than just protein. You also have fiber. You have, you know, B vitamins. A lot of folate, micro and macronutrients that you need. So you've got to, we've got to see beans as as something that can be added to a diet alongside a carbohydrate with some fun is a perfect meal. Okay, puncture this myth for me or tell me it's true. Are beans a, shall we say, human wind generator? So I've been trying to get to the bottom of this. People do say that um, often and, and many people do have a, 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 a gas issue when they have beans. Every nutritionist I've spoken to, they've said that it's actually about consistency. So if you just eat beans every now and then, then you're going to have your body's right. going to react. So but your actually, body gets used to it. Gas is actually part. It shows that your microbiome's working. And often we think about our microbiome. That's a lot of interest in how does our microbiome, what's our gut like, and so there's a lot. And a, and a healthy gut will have some gas come out of it. So you know this is also a sign that you're probably eating some of the right things, but it, I understand the concern. So there are some emissions. There are some emissions that we shouldn't be ashamed of. hundred percent. hundred percent. That was Paul Newnham from the Beans Is How campaign, and I'm sorry, I just had to ask that question to raise the, should we say, human gas emission <laughs> issue. So now we know more beans, healthy gut. Okay. But okay. What, how about this? If you can handle the beans, what's next? Bugs. Uh, All I right. mean, okay. Let me no, no. Bear with me on this one. We'll yeah, try and convince you. But what you. kind of bugs? Because in Colombia we eat we eat ants in a certain region, but they're fried and they, they taste like like peanuts. Well, I met Joseph Yoon. He's a chef and he's the founder of Brooklyn Bugs. He calls himself an edible insect ambassador. Ooh. Brooklyn Bugs is an outreach and education project, and he says that it's important to eat them for reasons of food security, sustainability, and environmentalism. And yes. Ants are on the menu, but they're not the only thing on the menu. The idea of eating insects wonderfully sparks people's curiosity. 
but it also can be very viscerally disturbing for those that don't know. So why should we eat insects? Why should we eat insects? I hate to answer a question with a question, but why shouldn't we eat insects? They are so incredibly nutrient dense. Cricket, there are over 2,000 types of edible insects with wildly different flavor profiles, textures, and functionality. But if we take crickets as one insect, they have all nine essential amino acids. They could be 60 to 80% protein by weight, which far usurps a lot of other traditional livestock. They are packed with micro and macronutrients. They have different minerals, and they take a fraction of the resources by way of land, water, and feed compared to other livestock. So it's so incredibly efficient. It's so incredibly smart and nutrient dense. It's like, why aren't we? Okay, now, change my mindset. Let's just say, could happen, you invite me over to your place in Brooklyn. Invited. Tasting menu, and, and you're talking me through the menu. What's on it? I love that you presume that I'm going to give you a tasting menu, because yeah, well, you better believe it. You bet, I'm not going to be like, oh, here's one big dish. We could start with like a cricket gougere, like a little cheese pot made with patachu, with cricket powder. And that might kind of tickle you to go like, I want something a little more adventurous, Joseph. And so I'd be like, okay, maybe you want to see the insects this time. And maybe I want to highlight, besides the nuttiness of crickets, perhaps black ants, which have formic acid, which gives it, as a, they have formic acid as a defense mechanism, but it gives it an acidic flavor. So what if we were to add that to like a guacamole instead of lemon or lime and have like some guacamole and of course a tortilla chips we'll make with some cricket powder just to like kind of start wetting your appetite. What's like your favorite food? I like to be informed of my dinner guests actually. Well, I've got to admit I have a great, I have a great venue for a really good pad thai. Okay, so pad thai. You're making the pad thai sauce and we could incorporate the cricket powder again. And so you're like, Joseph, I'm ready to start seeing the bugs. So I would think, you know, Manchurian scorpions are brined and then sun-dried, and they have this incredibly seafoody flavor, similar to brine shrimp. And so to like start challenging you to go like, I'm not sure if I was ready for a scorpion dish as my first dish. I think I would serve you a cricket pad thai with a, uh, uh, I would probably go with like a chili sauce, like a Thai chili pepper sauce, Venturian scorpion, uh, with a lot of veggies, obviously. And I think I would go for that for our carb sort of dish. Okay, well look, put it this way, I'm still hungry and infused, so um, I'm, I'm sorry that you, I know you had some problem in customs getting your stuff in, so back in Brooklyn, I'll take you up on that. How's that? I would love to do that, and I really, truly love nothing more than to be able to share this food experience. That was Steve and Yoon from Brooklyn Bugs, and I'm definitely going to check out the bug menu when I get to New York. He said, well, actually, I invited myself around to his oh, place for a tasting okay. menu, so we'll see if he takes me up on that when I'm back <laughs> in New York. Now, I think it's time we talk about George Clooney. George Clooney, oh, yes, I heard I heard something about him. Yeah, where's George Clooney? Is he yeah, here? Yeah, people are looking, looking for George Clooney. Everyone's talking about George Clooney. <laughs> George Clooney's not here, by the way. At least if he is, he hasn't told any of us. But, but why? He has, he has a store in front of our hotel. 
Well, that's the thing. There is a George Clooney hypermarket right outside our hotel. And we were laughing about it when we were coming in. And it turns out lots of the other delegates have seen it. They've been taking pictures and tweeting about it. The George Clooney hypermarket. And just a couple of doors up, there's the George Clooney hypermarket. I don't know if George Clooney is related to George Clooney. But if you're up near our hotel or if you are staying one of the hotels here, uh, we'd love to find out more about the George Clooney hypermarket. We've been in there a couple of times, yeah. haven't seen him. He's not behind the cash desk and he's not facing up the shelves either. But I'm pretty sure that I was uh, with another of my colleagues the other day and we also saw a Madonna hypermarket. Could be a side hustle they've got going on. If you see Madonna or George Clooney, do please let us know. Right, tomorrow, <laughs> it's Sunday. It's actually going to be a day off for us. Oh, um, yes. We're looking forward to that. But I know a lot of the uh, high-level people here are not getting much of a day off. We know that Selwyn Hart, the Secretary General's special advisor advisor on climate action, he's going to be working a bit tomorrow, he said. And all the negotiators are going to take a bit of a breather because it all starts again on Monday and it's only going to get harder. So we had better take a break so that we can push on through and bring you all the news right through to the end. Yes, we'll be back on Monday. Uh, when the ministers are actually arriving. So now the negotiations are going to get real. Thank you, Lara. I'll be taking a break. You're going to be going diving tomorrow. Yes. That's crazy. I'm staying in bed. I will see you on... I don't care. I'm I'm doing nothing tomorrow, (laughs) and I'll see you Monday.